This episode is sponsored by State Farm. You a small business owner looking for insurance that fits your needs and budget? Well, look no further than State Farm. State Farm agents are not just insurance providers. They're also small business owners who live and work right here in your community. They understand the unique challenges of running and protecting a small business. When it comes to small business insurance, State Farm knows what it takes. Create a plan that fits your needs and your budget. State Farm agents are ready to help you choose personalized policies that truly understand your business. Ensure your small business with a fellow small business owner. Talk to a State Farm agent today and get started on personalized small business insurance that fits your needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramp software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC terms and conditions apply. I'm Andy Dwyer. And when I'm not pulling suckers off my tomato plants in my garden, I'm stacking Benjamins. Live from Joe's mom's basement, it's The Stacking Benjamin Show. I'm Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug, and are you overworked and underpaid? Thinking about the gig or sharing economy as an answer? Before you do, you'll want to hear today's guest, Juliet Shore, the author of the bestseller, After the Gig. Plus... Why have nearly half of millennial travel credit card holders canceled their plastic during the pandemic? We'll break it down during our headline segment. And we'll still save time to throw out the Haven Lifeline to Bill, who has a question about making withdrawals from a 403B. And of course, I'll share some awe-inspiring trivia. And now, two guys who put the under in underpaid, it's Joe and O-J-J-J-J-J-G. I always say, whenever we're talking about raises, I got the under. Like you and I look at each other, whenever anybody says, hey, can I have a raise? I'm like, I got the under on this one. Doug puts the under in underachiever. That is probably also correct, but you tell him that. I'm not telling him that. You tell him. We just tell it to him in his paycheck. Hey, everybody. Oh, that's so horrible. Welcome to the worst place to work in America, Joe's mom's basement. I'm Joe Salcihi, Average Joe Money on Twitter. And across the card table from me, the evil boss man overlord himself, Mr. OG. Exactly. Yep. Not the fake OG on Twitter, by the way. Yes. Um, do you think that we could get a, uh, like a coffee mug, like world's worst boss? Or do you think Inc. Magazine puts out a list of like the crappiest places to work? <laughs> they always have the like... You know, Suzanne Lucas, the evil HR lady, writes for them. Maybe we can ask her, like, hey, we got a great idea for the next listicle that you guys do. It's musty. Whoa, that's a different podcast. <laughs> Where are you going with that one? <laughs> I don't even know. Hey, great news. In other news, just alerted that there's an excessive heat warning for my house today. Oh, that's good. So. For your house directly, not for the neighborhood or for the nope, city. Not the, not the area zip code. There's specifically OG's house, excessive heat warning. Yes. That's fun. Uh, so we can chalk that up to all the cool things that people can do in the basement. Die of heat stroke. Well, if you need somebody who can come over and maybe wave a fan at you or somebody that can design a better fan on the internet, big thanks to Fiverr for supporting Stacking Benjamin. So easy to find freelance talent to maybe make your fan, do voice talent, make ice cube noises for you. We just had an ice cube maker malfunction in our refrigerator. How does that happen? It, was, uh, it ceases to make ice. Oh, 
Yeah. Which is which is not necessarily meaning that the freezer is broken, by the way, which could be another way of not making it. It's like, I don't understand. It's not making ice. Well, the door's open. I remember, by the way, when that happened at my house and the, the repairman came out and he goes, the reason it's not making ice is because in the back it's froze up. I'm like, wait, isn't that what it's supposed to do? Isn't it supposed to? Hold on a second. Isn't that the whole goal? Exactly. I think it's, I think it's overachieving. <laughs> My- you know, ours was a little motor thing, and kudos to Mrs. OG. She's like, we don't need a repair person. We'll just order the part and do it ourselves, because DIY is my middle name. This is going to go Tr- well. Truthfully, truthfully, what, it was actually pretty easy. What could possibly go wrong? Anyway, thanks nice to night. Fiverr for supporting Stacky Benjamin. So easy to find freelance talent for your business or your product. Don't waste any more time. That derailed in a hurry, by the way. Get 10% off and the service you deserve because you're a stacker by going to F-I-V-E-R-R.com and use code SB. Thanks also to Student Loan Hero for supporting Stacking Benjamins. You know, when it's time to start paying off your student loans or to see the latest what's going on with repayment programs, especially, by the way, if you're one of two groups, either people who have loans that have just been affected again by the new rules that say that you don't have to pay off your loan, you don't have to start repaying your loan again until 2021, or the second, if you're somebody who isn't part of that group, because lots of student loan companies changing a ton your repayment options, head to studentloanhero.com. We got a great show today. Juliet Shore is uh, joining us today. It turns out, OG, the promise of the gig economy. And you and I have been hinting at this for a while. Maybe not the way that it turned out. The thing that we thought it was going to be versus what we have now, the sharing economy, not so shareistic, to put it, to put it mildly. We're going to talk about the problem. She has some potential solutions. I think you and I may talk about others. That's on today's show. But first, we've got some interesting, to say the least, headlines. So let's get this party started. Hello, darlings. And now it's time for your favorite part of the show, our Stacking Benjamin's Headlines. Our first headline comes to us from Investment News. Fidelity offers first Bitcoin fund. You knew it was only Hooray. a matter. Of time. It was only a matter of time, man. Why would I just have Bitcoin when I could get a Bitcoin fund? You know the fastest way to get to a uh, million dollars in your Bitcoin fund? Start with hundred million dollars. Start with two million. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Fidelity Investments is launching its first Bitcoin fund, adding its establishment name and star power to the fledgling and often controversial asset class. Here is my big problem and it's right here in the first sentence og is bitcoin an asset class or is it a currency uh what is c none of the above i'll take nothing for 300 alex it was meant to be a currency though wasn't it people investing in a currency drives me crazy well i mean so here's the thing like think of it this way let's say that you worked in canada and the United States, or you worked in the UK and in the United States, and you had you know homes in both places, and you were both. Places. It would make sense for you to have money in in the UK in banks. It would make sense for you to have money in the US in banks because you would have the opportunity to decide how how to pay for things. Sure, and it makes sense because that's your life, right? You're not gambling with whether or not the pound is going to outperform. You know, none of that matters. You're just saying, well, I live here and I live there. But nobody lives in Bitcoin land. Well, and to completely make your point, I think, even if you have some money in the U.S., if you live in the U.K., you just don't have stacks of dollar bills in your basement. Like, that's dumb. You take the money and you put it in investments inside the U.S. You have it in a savings account inside the U.S. The savings account is the, quote, investment, right? And I know a savings account is not an investment. The money market or the mutual fund or whatever. But you have it in the U.S. currency or in the euro or whatever. Property or something like that. You're using the currency in order to buy investments. Yes, the currency itself is not the investment. Right. So, so, and I get it guys, I get the, please don't write us about the fact that you can make tons of money in Bitcoin and people, yes, people have, yes. And Bitcoin will continue to be the wild west and possibly people will strike it rich on Bitcoin in the future, but that doesn't make it an investment. Bitcoin, I think is the beanie babies of the, uh, 
investment community. As long as you get the tiger one with the glasses, that's worth, you know, a bajillion dollars. Yeah. And I'm not, and I'm not saying that it's a fad. I think crypto is going to, as you look at these big companies integrate crypto into the way that they work, this idea of a quick fluid exchange that crypto promises makes sense. But again, OG, it makes sense from a currency perspective to me. Yeah. And barely does that for me personally. I look at it more of the technology is what's beneficial out of all of this. The blockchain. Yeah. The idea that one can transfer stuff and it's easily recorded and, and, and some of the benefits that that's going to provide for different different people, I think it's helpful. But um, isn't playing blackjack more fun than <laughs> buying Bitcoin? Like it's the same outcome. It's binary, right? There is no middle ground. It's like Tesla options on Reddit. <laughs> There's no more like, eh, you know, made 10%. I guess I'm good. No, it's like I was rich or broke. Those are those are the two choices. And the same things with Bitcoin, it seems to me anyway. The Fidelity Money Manager said in a filing to the Securities and Exchange Commission, it'll begin to offer the wise origin, wise origin, love that, Bitcoin index fund one through a new business unit called Fidelity Digital Funds. Peter Jubber, head of Fidelity Consulting will run the new business unit, the filing shows. The passively managed Bitcoin-only fund will be made available to qualified purchasers through family offices, registered investment advisors, and other institutions. According to a person familiar with the matter, Fidelity Digital Assets will custody the fund, the person said. The minimum investment, OG, $100,000. Well, at least it gets rid of the riffraff. <laughs> What's the over under on this? Uh, <clears throat> we were talking about unders before. What's the over under on this uh, on this fund closing? What do you think? Eighteen months. Yeah. Why would Why would I buy a fund and not just uh, buy Bitcoin? Is it so? Is this Is this so the custodian is able to more easily hold the crypto assets? Like it gives them a holding tank so that they can put it on the same statement as everything else for the family office or so they can go in and out of it easier. If you're managing a family office for one of these wealthy families that is going to buy it, is that the reason? I have no idea. It doesn't seem to make any sense because I mean, maybe their computer technology is better, but what happens when Fidelity's stuff gets hacked? Cause that's, that's where you hear, right? Like, Oh, I lost my hard drive. <laughs> yeah. Or, or the, the one computer still running Windows 95, compromised national security. <laughs> they got the nuclear launch codes. It's always something like that. And at least with you know an ETF or a mutual fund or like a real product, it's backed up by a whole bunch of different things. Like Fidelity takes a crap. You still have the shares in the fund. So uh, I don't know, 18 months. That's, that's, <laughs> that's, where, I'm, that's where I'm putting that. So I'm going to say uh, March 2022. Our second headline comes to us from consumeraffairs.com. This is written by reporter Mark Hoffman. Nearly half, half OG of millennial travel credit card holders have canceled their card during the pandemic. At one point during the coronavirus pandemic, air travel was down 96%. Hotel bookings have cratered, Mark writes. Cruise ships remain tied up at the pier. So maybe it's no surprise that consumers will begin asking themselves why they're paying an annual fee to carry a travel rewards card. Many millennials have apparently decided it's no longer worth it. A new value penguin survey shows that 41% of millennial travel card holders closed a travel rewards card since the beginning of the pandemic. Another 34% say they've thought about doing it. Have you thought about canceling your card? No. Where would I be able to charge things to? Well, you could do one that's a cash back card instead. I mean, there's I, other reward points. There's oh, you're saying I see what you mean. Like yeah. I don't need my miles anymore. I need you know something different. Well, and I think that's kind of short term thinking because at some point you're going to want to travel again, right? And if I just keep banking more points, unless I have a travel reward card where my points expire, banking more. Well, some of them do. Yeah, yeah, banking more is not a bad deal though if if they don't expire. I think it's a little bit more of a pain in the butt to deal with all that. So, nope, we're not big into the points game in as much as like travel cards and stuff like that. We're pretty, pretty universally American Express. So we get our, you know, membership points. But um, the other ones I hadn't really thought about canceling or whatever. There's another side to this, though, OG, Matt, our friend, uh, Matt Schultz. I know Matt, uh, chief credit analyst at LendingTree. By the way, the parent company of today's advertiser, uh, Student Loan Hero 
says, it doesn't surprise me at all that many people are closing travel cards right now. Many Americans are simply trying to keep food on the table and hoarding travel miles and points just doesn't make any sense for a lot of people at this time. That take makes sense to me. Get rid of unnecessary fees. Yeah, I was going to say, if that's if your card has a cost, which it likely does, if it's a reward card, if you're not getting that ROI anymore, then you can get rid of it. I, I do know that uh, there's an article I read the other day about Capital One making a pretty, pretty across-the-board cut in credit card limits. And I thought that was kind of interesting because we've had this on the show as a topic before, too. Like People say, well, you know, I've got 20 grand available on my credit card. That's my emergency fund. And it's like, well, that's only your emergency fund if that 20 grand's available. But when times get tough or banks think times are going to get tough, they will eliminate that, that risk associated with that. And we have a couple of Capital One cards that we don't use. And they sent us a letter, my wife and I, and said, hey, you don't use this very much, so we're chopping limits by 60%. And, 60%? Um, yeah, it was pretty decent. It was a pretty healthy cut. So you went but, out and um, ran it up so they never do that again? Yeah, t- taught them a lesson. <laughs> like, when does this take effect? Tomorrow at midnight. Watch this. Bam. Yeah, I'll show you. Showed you what's in my wallet. Exactly. Something interesting about that, by the way, when people call and cancel a credit card, remember that that also has a negative impact on your credit score, this piece says. But it doesn't, I, though. N- no, it does. But your amount of credit used versus the amount available is a piece well, of your credit respect. score. Yeah, and, respect, and, 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 and you will see it go down. But I've seen people, I mean, people like Susie Orman have even talked about that before. Listen, though, if you've got a problem with credit cards, which means you have a problem with spending, don't worry about the reward game at all, whether it's 2% cash back or travel miles, gas, right. whatever it might be. Forget about that. Also, forget about your credit score. Get yourself right. Your credit score doesn't matter as much as getting your finances in order matters. Don't leave that thing open to, quote, protect your credit score when you can't trust yourself with a piece of plastic in your wallet. Yeah. What you're talking about there is the available credit to amount used, that uh, utilization number, which is what you'll hear tossed around. That's a pretty high component to your credit score. A lot of people also say, well, if I close the card, it will affect my, because I don't have you know that history anymore. And the reality for that one, however, is that the, the credit history does stay with you for quite a while. You know, for that card, I think seven or 10 years or something, it stays on your credit report. But none of that matters, like you said, if you can't trust yourself with just having that thing to begin with. Yeah. Know thyself. Absolutely. OG and I are going to have more takeaways like that one in just a second. But before we get to those, if you're ready to pay off your student loans, Student Loan Hero thought so. You can take control of your financial life, Student Loan Hero is helping over 200,000 people pay off more than $3.5 billion worth of loans smarter and faster from all the things going on in Washington as the rules change now. For many people just in the last couple weeks, we've had changes where you may not have to make a payment until January on your loans. However, a ton of people are not eligible for that. In fact, there are a bunch more people that were eligible for the first round that aren't eligible for the second round. So don't go stop making payments on your student loans just because you think you're eligible. Make sure that you are. Whether it's the rules, refinancing, lowering payments, or forgiveness, Student Loan Hero has all the details on how to do that better from prepayment calculators to refinancing calculators, income-driven repayments, default and delinquency, parent plus loans, it's all there. Head to studentloanhero.com for more. That's studentloanhero.com. The first place to go to take control of your student loans. I think our lessons here, number one, OG, is that uh, Bitcoin still going to be the Wild West. And Fidelity getting in that market, I think, doesn't make it any less the Wild West, especially if you're thinking about, quote, investing in Bitcoin. I think you have to ask yourself, what am I really investing in? Am I investing in anything there? Much more like blackjack, to your point, than investing. And then our second takeaway, thinking about cutting up your cards. If there's an annual fee and you're worried about putting the food on the table, absolutely do it. Don't worry about your credit score. Don't try to make credit cards your emergency fund. Work on getting yourself financially right first. If, however, you're going to travel in the future, accumulating those points now, might mean that you'll have some nice trips later, OG. 
I'm so excited to talk to today's guest because Juliet Shore is a professor of sociology at Boston College. She's been digging into the sharing economy since the beginning, which she writes in her new book, After the Gig, How the Sharing Economy Got Hijacked and How to Win It Back. She talks about the promise of the sharing economy at first. And of course, things look a lot different here in 2020 than they did back in 2007, 2008. Before joining Boston College, by the way, she taught in the Department of Economics at this little university called Harvard. Not familiar with that one, but... Never heard of them. Yeah, I can, but I guess it's okay. Shore is an internationally known scholar of labor, consumption, environment. She has a few other accolades. Oh, gee, listen to this. She's a former Guggenheim and Radcliffe Institute fellow, recipient of the Leontief Prize in Economics and the Public Understanding of Sociology Award from the American Sociology Association. She is the chair of the board of the Better Future Project. But today, she's capping off her career, I'm sure. Climbing to the top of the mountain. All downhill from here. <laughs> by appearing on the Stacky Benjamin Show. Let's say hello to Juliet Shore. And on my dad's shortwave radio, Juliet Shore joins us. How are you? I will, thank you. Before we get into the sharing economy and hopefully fixing the sharing economy, what do you think that COVID has done to the sharing economy in general? It's had a huge impact. I mean, some of the obvious stuff is some sectors have pretty much collapsed, like ride hail. Others have soared uh, shopping, you know, Instacart, grocery shopping and delivery, food delivery, uh, prepared and groceries. It's also affected platforms like care.com, which provides in-person caring labor, oh, yeah. elder care, child care, you know, where people are not wanting others to come into their house cleaning. So it's really affected the person-to-person services, which is a lot of what the quote-unquote sharing economy has been about. Well, here's one interesting one, though. Airbnb collapsed when the lockdown started. They're reporting that uh, June and July, they were back to last year's levels, which means I think mostly people are renting whole apartments and houses because they don't want to go into hotels. So Changes in the pattern of demand from the consumer side, for sure. And then there's a lot happening on the worker side. Uh, interviews I've been doing uh, with a team of researchers at Northeastern uh, with shoppers and delivery people. The workers are talking about how hard it is to get work right now because so many people have flooded onto the platforms. People have lost their job yeah. in other other kinds of jobs. So. These platforms generally operate with excess supply of workers, too many workers chasing too little work, but that seems to have really intensified now. And, and I want to ask you a lot more about that uh, specifically, because I think that that might be part of the issue that we're going to talk about with the sharing economy. But I'd like to kind of frame our discussion in a great video chat I saw that you had back in 2013. And because a lot of people, as you may know, come to financial shows interested in financial wealth, right? That's why you listen to finance shows. But in this interview, you talked about how there's other types of wealth. There's time wealth and there's the ability to be with your family more. Can you elaborate on that? Because I thought that was so fascinating how you took this idea of wealth and really widened it. Yeah. In my Plenitude book, which I published about 10 years ago, I argued for what I call true wealth. I identified four types. So one is financial wealth. The other is time wealth, which you've mentioned. The third is natural wealth, the wealth of the earth, ecosystems, natural capital, whatever term you want to use. And the fourth is community wealth. And that's kind of social connections and community you can be rich in community and social connections, or you can be impoverished. And what I argued in the book was that we'd, our economy has oriented people far too much to just the financial wealth. So we're, we're trashing the earth, we're trashing each other, and we're spending so many hours at work and too 
frenzied and harried. And there are reasons for that. It's not just the moral failings of individuals. It's the way our economic system is structured that's doing that. So I think we need to change the way our economy works in order to really fully invest in those four kinds of wealth. But to have a decent world, to actually have a livable world, to avoid ecocide, we've got to invest in all four. Well, and that was the hope of the sharing economy, right? You and your team point out that really a lot of the sharing economy comes from the big problems during the financial crisis. People thought that maybe there's a better way. Can you walk me through how that kind of went off the rails? Yeah. Let me start with what it was supposed to do. Uh, In the book, I call it the idealist discourse, and it actually addresses those four kinds of wealth in some important ways. So in the early days, the idea of sharing was, number one, economic efficiency. You have spare resources that you're not using, a spare room in your home. You're driving somewhere. You've got a, a seat in your car. You could share it with somebody else. That would reduce carbon emissions. Home sharing would reduce the construction of new hotels. That was the idea. So there was going to be that ecological impact. It was going to create connections between people. Neighborhood sharing platforms were going to bring neighbors together because instead of buying everything for yourself, you'd just borrow each other's. And we were going to be able to control our time better because one of the things about these labor platforms is they do allow workers to work when they want, as much or as little as they want. And it was supposed to bring economic opportunities to people who were struggling because of the recession. Okay, so what happened? So there were a lot of small, like community-based sharing initiatives that really tried to stay true to these things, but they didn't really take off the way the big corporate players did. You know, a big part of why Airbnb and Uber grew so much was they were offering such cheap, low prices for these services. A lot cheaper for Airbnb to a hotel, a ride hail. You know, where I live, it was half the price of a taxi or less when they started. So a couple things happened. One is suddenly people are taking a lot more private vehicles and they're doing a lot more traveling because the lodging is cheaper. So that eliminated the ecological benefits. As these services, they started out being friendlier, but as they commercialized, people started sitting in the backseat and treating the Uber driver or the Lyft driver just like a cabbie. Or they started renting the whole place on Airbnb, so they never even met the person who owned it. So the social stuff really fell off as well, for the not totally, but for the most part. The earnings part and the time part are interesting. So there was still there's still some people who use these as sort of part time and they're able to get some money and do it and control their schedule and all of that. But what we saw, especially on ride hail and delivery, is the shift to pretty much more and more of a full time dedicated labor force who lost all that flexibility because the companies kept lowering the rates that they were being paid and they just had to work more and more. And is that a factor, by the way, you said earlier, and I want to loop back to this, is that a factor partly of the fact that there were so many people flocking to these platforms that companies said, Hey, we've got this access. We have all this labor all over the place. We can find out who stays around as we just make it less and less and less profitable for people. Yes. So the fact is the companies could do it. And then we also want to ask why were they doing it? And especially in ride hail, part of the problem is the whole model is financially unsustainable because the prices are too low. They don't actually even cover the costs, even with those terrible low rates to the drivers. So a transportation economist named Hubert Haran, who I just found that, you know, I've been reading his work for years and just found out we actually were in college together in the same <laughs> classes. <laughs> a really interesting guy. And he's been on to Uber and Lyft from the beginning. And he calculated they were giving about a 40% subsidy for each ride. So these investors in the company were subsidizing these rides because the company's been losing money all along. The, you know, the idea, presumably the strategy is wipe out all the competition 
and then you can jack the prices up to profitable levels. But in the meantime, because there was a lot of competition to keep the prices low, because Uber has Lyft as well as public transportation, plus the fact that people don't have to take these Ubers a lot of the time. They can walk, they can not go somewhere. It, you know, it turns out that something like 60% of the, the trips are trips that didn't have to be taken by a private vehicle, the ride hail. So the so they're losing all that money. And so that just put a lot more pressure for management to reduce the costs of the drivers. And so they had the pressure and they could because the drivers are there. When they have trouble recruiting drivers, they give bonuses, incentives, they do pay more. I'm in Boston. It's a city that's always had a really strong lift presence. The drivers here, I think, are, are getting a better deal than the places where there's not much competition from Lyft. Yeah, looking at most of these programs, it seems, I feel like the sharing economy has turned into luring people who are kind of bad at math, like people who don't understand that it's very difficult to make a living. You know, you talk about there was a promise initially. You've got a, a woman. Well, it's really neat. You... You have a lot of stories about real individuals in your book, but there's a woman named Bev and she's not an activist. She's not enamored with anything except the fact that she can have flexibility and the pay is pretty good. And now the pay is not that good. And because she doesn't want to do it full time, she's been blocked by TaskRabbit. They don't even consider her anymore. So this, this ability of being flexible and having great wages, which by the way, you think about any, anybody who owns any business if you have flexible hours, great pay never comes along with that, right? I mean, is that an unsustainable promise? I think it depends on the skill levels and exactly how the product is, you know. So like if you're a speaker who can get a good price for giving public speaking, you can pick and choose when you want. If you have some market power, but as you sort of move down the labor market in terms of market power and skills, Generally, people have to trade off income or, you know, wages for flexibility. Yeah. So the more flexibility you want, you, you get paid less. Yeah, which seems like that's where we're headed with these then is what you're saying is because of the fact that we get less flexibility, we're being paid less and less and less. We're being told more what to do by these instead of getting what we were promised. Yeah, and, you know, your point about, I forget the term you use, but the lack of financial literacy that, that we're seeing with some of the workers here. Yeah, just people bad so, at math. Yeah, people bad at math. So there's a, a number of studies of ride hail, which show that quite a few ride hail drivers don't actually know what they're making because, so they're looking at their gross they're not looking at their hourly. And then, of course, the calculating the expenses is complicated. How, right. how, how do you do that? You know, we have in, in our research found people who are freaking out when April's coming around because they're independent contractors and they're going to owe taxes. You know, we had one interview with a bicycle courier delivering prepared foods. I'll never forget this. I mean, this is such a perfect moment. And we asked the research, my grad student interviewed him and asked, what, how much do you make an hour? And he didn't have any idea. And he said, well, let's figure it out. And he goes to his app and he looks up and he calculates the number of hours. And, it, and he, he realizes that he was making $6 an hour. Yeah. But he was living with his parents. To him, it was like, okay, I'm earning this money. He wasn't thinking about it in terms of, you know, am I earning enough to make a, a living or, you know, pay rent, or he was sharing food expenses with his girlfriend and just, you know, the companies are getting these people for almost nothing. And it's really uncertain what you're going to make. One day you might make a lot, the next day, very little. And people talk to us about how they go out there and they just don't know. If you just need it for extra income, because you've got a decent job, with benefits and so forth, and you can figure out the good times to go, it can work. But the people who are dependent on these platforms for their livelihood, they're out there every day. Yeah, because they have to eat tomorrow. If you're living paycheck to paycheck, it doesn't matter. I want to get to, and I'm looking at the time and holy cow, we, I could talk about this for forever, but I wanted to talk a little bit about, and you have so many different um, ideas at the end of the book as to solutions. 
But it seems to me that one solution you presented, I found really compelling was this idea of a bunch of people owning the asset together. So there was a gentleman, I think his name was Tim, who talked about when it comes to ride sharing, maybe we all own the cars together. We decide when we add a new car, we decide when we add new drivers, maybe it doesn't scale as much, but then we have a lot more control. Talk a little bit to that and some of the other solutions that you guys found to this problem. Yeah, there's a whole movement called platform cooperativism, which is to create the worker-owned platforms So they're using all the same advanced technology and getting all the benefits of this technology. But instead of so much of the money going to the investors and the shareholders and the founders, it's going to the people who do the work. And that's the premise of a cooperative. So we studied a cooperative of artists, photographers who have a platform and they sell photographs online. And it it works incredibly well. The artists get a lot more money than when they work for the basically the Uber of their industry, which is something called Getty, Getty Pictures. But there are co-ops forming in, you know, small co-ops forming in driving, in house cleaning, um, in delivery. They're the best of both worlds in the sense that they get the benefits of the technology, but not the predatory behavior by the companies. I think what's difficult is to figure out how to scale them because These big companies scaled with huge marketing budgets, huge budgets for incentives. They could burn through billions of dollars just establishing themselves, which is something that a co-op can't do. But even without the predatory stuff, which, I mean, that's one big whole topic, I don't feel like the sharing economy, the way it's happening now is sustainable. I just don't feel like it's sustainable. I think at some point word catches on that these are predatory companies and we can't work for these companies long-term and ever get anywhere. I feel like some of the co-op solutions that you present are much more sustainable for everybody. We could operate that way for a long time and maybe the people that create the platform make money, but because you're paying a living wage that people can accept, now it lasts for a long period. Yeah, well, I think you're right, but if we're in a big recession going forward. We don't know what the labor market's going to look like. If if things are more dire, the companies are going to be able to get people because they won't have other options. And that's one of the ways they started. I mean, we found, you know, I was one of the earliest researchers of the sharing economy. We talked to a lot of people in the early days who couldn't find work, mostly college students who were coming out of college in in the Great Recession. And so they just turned to these platforms because they couldn't get other kinds of jobs. So you're right that their models aren't long term sustainable, but, you know, they may be able to get people. Now, the one that I think is more sustainable is Airbnb. And I'll tell you why. With Airbnb, the guests like it and the hosts like it. The platform takes a reasonable fee. It's not a gouger like the ride hail for example, or, you know, TaskRabbit was taking 30% of the first task that uh, between a poster and a tasker. I mean, that's a huge fraction based for what they're doing. Airbnb is more in the total of a 15% half from each side kind of thing. The problem with Airbnb is on the people who aren't using the service. It's the people who can't rent apartments anymore because they've been converted to Airbnbs, the people whose neighborhoods have been destroyed. You know, so that's a, you know, what we would call an insider outsider issue. So the insiders are happy. I do think Airbnb has a more profitable future than Ridehale, which I think will have to shrink to be profitable because it's just the volume of private cars and private deliveries that these ride hail companies are are trying to the size of the market i just think is too big for a full cost pricing the book is called after the gig how the sharing economy got hijacked and how to get it back i'm assuming the book's available everywhere yes absolutely well congratulations to you i know a team of people worked with you on this great job by everybody thanks so much for spending some time with us talking about the sharing or maybe non-sharing economy thank you it was really fun hey trivia fans i'm joe's mom's neighbor doug and you know i've been thinking 
The Democrats had their convention for Joe Biden and Republicans had their convention for Donald Trump. So I think it's about time we have the convention for the least crooked candidate of them all. And you know who that is. It's me, your favorite neighbor, Doug. I can wholly endorse that it's about time that the U.S. citizens know exactly what I stand for. Since I'm so not crooked, no super PACs support me, just the hardworking podcast listeners of America and these two feet. No special interest money gets in the way of my decisions unless your name is Gertrude and you want some more of the shrimp special down at the Sizzler and you throw five bucks towards the bill. Know what I mean? Nothing besides that, though. And definitely no quid pro quo. Uh, except maybe the time that Joe's mom said she'd let me watch Wheel of Fortune with her if I pitched in on making her favorite eye-watering brownies. But I'm not crooked, uh-uh. So now, before we blow the lid off this convention, let's amp up this podcast with a dose of incredible trivia. Just like, uh, you know, I'm the all-time hit candidate of this election cycle. This week in history, back in 1985, Major League Baseball got a new leader in all-time hits. And in fact, he still holds the record. So the question is, who is it? I'll be back faster than you can write in Neighbor Doug on your presidential ballot. Hey, often here in the Stacking Benjamin Show, we have a project idea and we need to bring it to market really fast. And like a lot of companies out there, Juliet Shore just talked about how nimble companies probably need to be if they really want to win. A company that can help you with that is Fiverr, because if you're finding freelance talent for your business or projects, sometimes you have to pivot or something that you didn't expect jumps in the way of you getting your project done, making it impossible to meet your deadline with the size of your current team. Fiverr answers a bunch of your questions like, where do you go to find on-demand talent? How much is it going to cost? How can you be certain that they're going to deliver? Finding the right freelancer can be time-consuming, frustrating, and expensive. Fiverr's platform helps keep businesses moving with a network of trusted freelance professionals. We use Fiverr here for a myriad of things, mostly as we've talked about in the past, vocal talent. However, we've also used them for writing help, for editing help, for graphics help. We've used them in a lot of different ways. And it's not just for creative companies like Stacking Benjamins. You'll find whatever your company is, if you just log into Fiverr.com, you'll see that there are people out there who are experts at helping you build, advertise, monetize, whatever it is that you're doing. So whether you're launching your first business, scaling your current business, or in need of extra support to complete a project, Fiverr's here to help you evolve, adapt, and grow. Fiverr connects businesses with freelancers who offer hundreds of digital services. You can find what you're looking for instantly. Search by service, deadline, price, reviews, and more. You'll know exactly what you're paying for up front. No negotiating needed 24-7 customer service. Check out Fiverr.com today. And because you're a stacker, they're going to give you 10% off your first order if you use our stacker code SB. It's super easy. Find all the digital services you need in one place at FIVERR.com, code SB. Again, that's Fiverr.com, code SB. Well, you know all the things that we'd love to do for ourselves but haven't done for whatever reason. For me, when I was young and had braces, I didn't take it as seriously as I should have, mostly because... I was young and I didn't get it. So because of that, my bottom jawline, especially my teeth are all over the place. Well, I'm done putting it off. And thanks to candid straightening, my teeth is simpler, easier, more comfortable than ever. Candid's clear aligners are comfortable, removable, and practically invisible. Unlike wire braces, you can transform your smile without anybody noticing. Plus, your treatment's prescribed and monitored remotely by a licensed orthodontist who's an expert in tooth movement, and it's all done from the comfort and convenience of your own home. Candid only works, by the way, with orthodontists, never general dentists like other companies. Plus, your supervising orthodontist will be with you every step of the way. With Candid, your treatment includes remote monitoring by the same orthodontist who created your plan, so you never have to worry how you're doing. You'll always know, and I absolutely love that. Average Candid treatment, it's about six months, and you'll start seeing results way before then. 
and it costs thousands less than braces. So start straightening your teeth today. Right now, all of our stacker friends can save $75 on Candid Starter Kit. Go to candidco.com slash SB and use code SB. That's candidco.com slash SB, code SB. Take advantage of this limited time offer to save $75 in your starter kit. Candidco.com slash SB, code SB. Hey, fellow Americans and other nationalities, it's your presidential pal, Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug. The Doug 2020 National Convention is going better than I could have ever hoped. You just missed a rousing number from Cooper the Cat, and Joe's mom was completely moved to tears. I'm sure that had nothing to do with allergies, though. Uh, Joe's mom is preparing to take the stage right now by the canned peaches, and I think she's talking about how to make the pantry great again. Yeah, Joe and OG still owe me a speech, but of course, those slackers haven't passed along the manuscripts yet, running behind as always. Because of this unacceptable level of non-action, I can tell you who won't be my secretaries of state. I still might make Joe the foreign ambassador to Bavaria or maybe somewhere even further away, but he better start impressing me, I'll tell you that. So many jobs to fill when I'm elected president, and so few qualified candidates least here in the basement anyways well i gotta get back to the convention but before i do let's get back to today's trivia the question was this week in history back in 1985 major league baseball got a new leader in all-time hits and he still holds the record today so the question is who is it would you believe it's the very guy who got banned from the mlb for betting on games mr charlie hustle himself or you know you might know him by his real name pete rose who ended his career with 4,256 hits, which is still good enough for first place today, but still won't get him into the Hall of Fame because, you know, the whole the the betting thing. One thing you can bet on, though, and not feel bad about, Doug for president. Yeah, that's right. Hashtag Doug 2020. All right, Joe's mom's taking the stand. Gotta go. You said Rafael Palmero. I can't think of Rafael Palmero. Without thinking about a guy throwing a football through a through a tire, remember those commercials? No, I don't. The commercials that talk about if the times right. Oh, that wouldn't be anything I'd be watching, but I can <laughs> understand understand a man of your easy age. <laughs> I was, was way off. I thought that he was up there, but that's not true. He's not on there at all. He's he's towards the bottom. He's at three thousand twenty. No, oh, but how about Pete Rose? Should he be in the Hall of Fame? care so little about baseball that I, I I don't care one way or the other. Sure. What do you think? Yes. I think it's probably better than for us to pivot to a different topic is what, is what I think that could have been fascinating, but with a different audience, plus probably baseball, not uh, what we want to talk about, because I think what we really want to talk about is this piece. I'm not sure about Juliet's solutions. OG. I do think the idea that you can do the sharing economy probably much better though in the way it was intended and save money if it's more local, right? You'll see some of these Facebook sharing groups of people that are just in a certain community. You've got these hand-me-downs. I need these hand-me-downs. You've got this thing. I need this thing. And we, we barter and we trade. That goes back to the roots of the sharing economy. But trying to do this on a national or international level takes investors and I think the second you get investors involved, it's very difficult to go, no, 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 this is about sharing, not about cleaning up as much as we possibly can. Right. Well, yeah. I mean, because people who have excess capital and they want to invest in companies are expecting a return. Sure. There was a uh, uh, article in the Wall Street Journal a couple of weeks ago about Ford Motor Company and how because of the fact that they have quarterly earnings all the time, they're just so far behind in terms of like innovation, or at least this is what the article was saying, that they're behind in innovation compared to some other places, think Tesla, because they, you know, they've got to like stick to their bread and butter because people expect their Ford dividends. People expect they're like plodding along. Meet the next number instead of a 10 year number. Yeah. And so the article said, maybe they should take Ford private owned by a few PE firms who can really crank on innovation and then relist it out as a tech company later which I thought was an interesting spin. It is frustrating because I do think that um, 
that while companies like Uber and Lyft, I mean, to Juliet's point, when I asked her about whether these are sustainable, and she said, of course, it's sustainable. As long as you've got plenty of people that want to work at this rate, Uber can keep paying people next to nothing. Right. But I think a company, you know, more like uh, Starbucks that looks at the fact that if you pay your people a living wage and they're able to make money, you have a much more sustainable approach. Of course, that doesn't happen all the time, right? I mean, Starbucks went through a period, if you remember, a few years ago where it, it looked like big doom and gloom for that company, just got really ugly at Starbucks. So it doesn't mean that there's a panacea. I think this is a very difficult topic. I mean, I think that's, this is a hugely difficult topic. I agree. Oh, and I'm sure there's uh, more to follow on all of this. Yeah. Absolutely. I think the big takeaway for our listeners, though, has less to do with the big heady topic of where does this go, more to before you decide to take part in the sharing, quote, sharing economy or gig economy, I think you have to know how to look at that ROI better. And we didn't really get into this with Julia OG, but I think that when you're doing this math, looking at things like the depreciation on your automobile, how do you pay your health insurance on your own? Because that's going to be a factor, right? And you look also at the fact that what type of business is worth owning? It isn't worth owning a business if it only pays today's wage. You have to be able to save some money as well. So as an example, you look at a restaurant, a restaurant tries to make their food cost as small as possible in relation to the price of the dish to the customer, which brings up, you know, the real problem with owning a restaurant. It's not about being able to make good food. It's about being able to make good food and be able to save enough money to make good food for a long period of time. Well, I think that even if you're not a business owner, business owner, this goes to any time that you decide to do anything with money, you have to examine it from the perspective of how would I do this if I was running it like an operation, like an organization. You talk about how you have your family meetings about money. That's what happens at a large organization. When you think about decision-making for new purchases or you think about decision-making around investing, if you take it from the approach of being a CFO or the CEO of an organization, and this would go into, do I go rent a room out of my house or do I buy a vacation property and Airbnb it or do I go drive Uber or whatever? If you look at it from all the perspectives, you know you come up with a better ability to make better decisions. I totally agree. Hey, let's throw out the Haven Lifeline, OG, and tackle life's most important questions. Our friends at Haven Life Insurance Agency, they put what you value first. Mackinac Island fudge ice cream. That is oddly specific. <laughs> Don't judge me. After a month in Vermont, I need to say like Ben and Jerry's. Oh, yeah. And craft New York beer. Super Fudge Chunk. Mm, so good. It's actually your loved ones and your time, but hey, if I can have my loved ones, my time, along with uh, some Ben and Jerry's, that's fantastic. That's why they've made buying quality term life insurance actually simple. Head to stackybenjamins.com forward slash Haven Life now for a free quote. You know, if you're somebody who needs life insurance and you know that you need life insurance, hit pause right now. Head to stackybenjamins.com forward slash Haven Life. Then you can unpause the episode. Stop putting it off. We have no idea when something bad's going to happen. Get that done. Something we're getting done today, though, is we are throwing out the Haven lifeline to our friend Bill. Say hi, Bill. Hi, guys. I have a 403B uh, with Guidestone, if that's important. It has expenses in the, uh, and fees in the range of uh, 0.5 to 1.8%. There are no annual fees, and it holds about 20% of our retirement funds. From what I understand, because this was clergy income, I have the ability to take some retirement funds out of this account tax-free as a housing allowance. I retired from my clergy work last year. I'm still part working part-time in a non-clergy capacity. I'm 58 years old. Am I allowed to take the housing allowance distributions from my 403B, use it to pay for my housing expenses, then deposit earnings from my wife and my part-time jobs then in our Roths or in Roth 401ks. Uh, and would this be wise? Thanks. Size large. <laughs> Thanks, Bill. Congratulations on the retirement, by the way. 
That's good news. And now, OG, the part that I love, and this is the question I think not enough people ask. Going back to Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, Stephen Covey said, when you pick up one end of the stick, you pick up the other end. And we get tons of questions about how do I put money away this side of the equation Every bit is important. Now I got the money there. How do I take it out very efficiently? So can he, number one, take out his housing allowance? The answer to this is yes, a certain amount. But then can he also make Roth contributions based on the money that he has coming in? I don't see why not. I don't see why you wouldn't be able to contribute to, the, uh, to a retirement plan while withdrawing from another one. There's, you have to have earned income. So assuming that you have earned income... That would qualify that for the Roth contributions. And if your wife is working or even if she's not working, she would be able to contribute by virtue of the spousal provisions. Uh, what you're looking for here is in the IRS publication 517. And it talks all about the housing allowance and the calculation of this. Super technical. This is the job of, a, of someone who's going to be willing to go to jail for figuring this out correctly, <laughs> i.e. a CPA. And and when they're willing to sign on the dotted line that says that they are willing to pay the fine with you, go to jail if it's fouled up, then you know you've done it right. So this isn't anything I would try to tackle on my own. I'm not sure if a simple program like TurboTax or, or, or Tax Act or whatever would be able to even recognize this because I think this is a post-distribution credit effectively because you're because your 403B people aren't going to be able to qualify this as a distribution on the way out. You have to figure it out on the way back when you go to do your taxes, basically. So yeah, you're going you to need help. You, you can't call the people when you're taking $2,000 out and say, hey, this is my housing. Yeah, it's not going to show up on the tax yeah. form as, as a specific distribution type, I don't think. And kind of the secondary issue with this is usually you withhold taxes when you take money out of your workplace plans. So you've put money in grown tax deferred, now you take the money out, you're going to want some help on calculating exactly what, if any, percentage should be taken out in terms of taxes based on the rest of your income outside of that. You know, if all you're taking is the amount that's allowable for the uh, housing component, then you're going to have to instruct the 403B people to not withhold any taxes, even though you'd say, well, if I withhold them, then I'm going to get them back. It's not the same. Nobody saves their their tax returns, by the way. So if you over withhold by five grand and you get a $5,000 check next April, you don't go, oh, that's my retirement money. No, no, no. You, you end up spending it. So plus you want to keep that money in the plan and deferred longer and growing to heck, you know, uh, uh, in the investment accounts. So this is a great question for a tax pro. Quick answers. Yes, you can. Pretty sure you can. And go hire somebody who is way smarter than some two losers on the internet. <laughs> <laughs> but wear your cool shirt when you go and yes. um yes and then just say hey i got this about 40 percent of the way down the field with these two idiots on the internet oh i think that's shirt. that is i think it's 80 percent of the way just being able You're to say right. here's the document here's who you see i think that's our job here that's saying 80 percent. i say that's 99 percent the work the CPA is going to do, they're going to take it across the finish line. They're going to get all the credit. We're not going to get any of the credit, even though we probably deserve 99% of it. Okay, fine. You're right. Big, big thanks to Bill. Uh, no, the uh, I think OG's first number. Probably right. Big thanks to Bill for calling in. If you've got a question for us, doesn't need to be a technical question like Bill's can be a question that you think, man, this seems to me to be a stupid question, but it, it was always amazing to me when I was a financial planner, how many people would ask questions and go, I think this is a stupid question. And it never is because it turns out everybody has those same questions. Feel free to call the Haven Lifeline, stackybedjamins.com forward slash voicemail. If you've got a phone, we know the microphone works there. Just do it there or on your computer if it has a microphone. Doesn't have to be a fancy mic. Just if your computer you can talk into, you're good. StackyBenjamins.com forward slash voicemail. Also, but if you're somebody that needs more help, not with a single question, but with, man, I need to make sure that all of my stuff dovetails and it's all headed toward my goals. OG and his team are taking clients. Head to StackyBenjamins.com forward slash OG to see how his team can 
help you put Humpty Dumpty together again better than you were doing on your own. All right, that's going to do it for today. Doug, you got it from here, man. What should we have learned today? Ah, sure thing, Joe. I'll do my presidential duty and tell everybody what they should have learned today. First, take a lesson from our headline. Just like people are canceling their credit card reward cards, it's smart to regularly review your expenses to make sure you're not paying for things you're not fully utilizing or find value in. Second, take a lesson from Juliet Shore. While working in the gig economy, working for companies like Uber, Lyft, Grubhub, and others might be good for a quick buck today, those opportunities are not long-term fixes, and you should find something that works for you, not just the gig economy companies. But the big takeaway, Doug 2020 is in full swing, people, your future president of the United States of America, but now to decide who's going to be my running mate. Ooh, a cliffhanger. Special thanks to Juliet Shore for joining us on Dad Shortwave. You'll find a link to her book, After the Gig, on our show notes page at stackingbenjamins.com. This show is created by Joe Saul Cihai, produced by Taylor Stevens, and engineered by the amazing Steve Stewart. Online, visit us on Twitter at SBenjaminsCast or on our Facebook page. I'm Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug, and if you could only know what it really smells like down here. SB Podcasts may receive payment on the show from sponsors and guests in the form of books, giveaway items, discounts, or other remunerations. That's a big word. There's no way you take advice from these dorks, but like Joe's mom always says, don't take advice from people you don't know. This show is for entertainment purposes only. And before making any financial decisions, consult with a real financial advisor. And big thanks to everyone for gearing up to vote in the election. Working together, we can create a beautiful, sizzler-filled America, people. Shrimp appetizer and clean tables in every house. Due to current economic conditions, it's my job to inform you that the light at the end of the tunnel has been turned off. Are we in the after show? Yes. Oh, there's never like a smooth transition. There's always just like this silence. Someday. And then you talk. I don't, I don't know what the rules are. That was my favorite helpful hint. I do know the rules. About how to make this podcast better was the hint. Maybe it's five years ago now. The guy that said, the only thing I find annoying about your show is near the end, you have a minute of silence. And then you guys start talking again. Why don't you just eliminate that minute of silence? Yeah. Because dot, dot, dot. So you, you guys were uh, hanging out and going to look for the moose, mooses, musorum. I'm not sure the conjugation of. Yes. I think the time flux continuum thing on this show where. <laughs> now we're going back in time to when we're I was in Vermont. In it's exactly. Which, by the way, is right now Seems as like we yesterday. record this. <laughs> Seems as recent as yesterday. Cheryl's been packing the car. We actually leave tomorrow. But when you hear this, because of uh, all the travel I'm going to be doing, we're recording slightly ahead. But yeah, we went to what they call the Northern Kingdom. And by the way, Andy from Vermont, it was a last second thing. And I finally, at the last minute, like the last day we're here, I thought, you know, really want to do a meetup. I know I said we weren't going to do a meetup, want to do a meetup. But it was a last-minute thing. Cheryl said, yeah, you know, instead of, event. Yeah, instead of going event. south. So, Andy, I apologize. We were in Derby, where Andy is from. 
which he says on our intros to Money with Friends, went through Derby and uh, felt bad. But anyway. You, you, what you should have done is just walked around the town with your second Benjamin shirt on just to see. Well, I did. I kept asking people. I'm like, do you know Andy? Because uh, I'm, I'm, I'm looking for Andy. Do you know Andy? For Andy? Anybody yes. know where Andy is? What's Andy's last name? I don't remember. I just know Andy from Derby, Vermont, uh, listens to our show. I think his last name is Derby, Vermont. Yes. <laughs> don't you guys know everybody here? By the way, Derby, Vermont is right on the Canadian border. Hey. Yeah, you know that whole joke about how some politician could see Canada from her house? Andy could probably see, literally can see Canada from Russia. his house. Russia was the joke. Oh, it was Russia. That's right. <laughs> Wrong. You can same see same. you see how closely I follow politics. Same thing. But yeah, so we thought we might see a moose, so we drove two hours north and did some fantastic hikes. Saw a bunch of bear scat, which, by the way, for those of you who don't know what scat is, that's bear poop, and it was fairly fresh. So we were uh, based on the taste. <laughs> we we were we were right. Uh, just just missed an awkward moment with a bear. He's like, hey, guys, do you mind? I'm, I'm trying exactly. to do my thing here. But we thought we'd see a moose. And I don't know, it was maybe most of the way through the day when Cheryl's flipping through the guidebook and it said something to the tune of, if you try really, 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 really hard, like if you're persistent at it, you might see a moose. And then we realize there's no way in hell we're going to see a moose. So oh. no, no mooses. Almost a bear. We, you just, the kid with his new toy. You can't get it off, can you? I'm surprised you're not blind. <laughs> well, stackers, the show might be over, but the celebrations are just beginning because it is Military Appreciation Month that I want to celebrate people like my brother-in-law, Eric, who is such a giving person. Eric will do just anything for you. And as a Marine, you can see that his time in the military taught him to be a guy who gives to his community, gives to his family, and is always there when you need them. This Military Appreciation Month, Navy Federal Credit Union wants to celebrate members like Eric who go above and beyond. Navy Federal offers member-only exclusive rates, discounts, and tools to empower their members and help them reach their goals. Navy Federal's employees are part of the community they serve. Many of them are military family members, reservists, or veterans. And all branches of the military, veterans, DOD, employees, and their families are eligible for Navy Federal membership. In fact, there are so many resources on the Navy Federal website, resources like Best Cities After Service to help veterans transition to civilian life and Best Careers for Military Spouses to support military families. Visit NavyFederal.org celebrate and you'll see all of their Military Appreciation Month offers and other Navy Federal offers. Navy Federal is insured by NCUA, Equal Housing Lender.